I don't know that anyone loves uh, shopping for a new house. Uh, I definitely did not the times that we did that. My least favorite part about purchasing a new house by far was the inspection. Uh, I don't question their importance, but I did not like the cost, and I often didn't like the results. When we were first moving to the valley from Charleston, we were actually in a contract on a house right here in the Western Hills neighborhood, uh, years before we even would have considered coming into this building. That would have been interesting. Uh, everything looked great by way of bedrooms and yard space. We could really picture ourselves living there. But then the inspector looked around and he saw foundation issues. If you've purchased a house in West Virginia, uh, you also have heard about foundation issues. And the movement of the basement walls was substantial enough that we actually canceled our contract and started looking again. As much as I didn't like paying for the home inspection, it always proved valuable. I mean, if a house has already started shifting, you don't want to move into something that's unstable or maybe even unsafe. Sometimes that type of foundation issue can be so bad that the whole house really should be torn down and rebuilt. Genesis 1 ends with God declaring that all of his creation was very good. There was no sin. There was only that which clearly declared and reflected the glory of the creator. Uh, like a mirror with no cracks, no smudges. God's nature and character were displayed without distortion and without covering. Leanne discovered a crack in our windshield this week. Apparently a small rock had hit it at just the right angle to put a small nick in the glass. And from there, probably maybe the temperature fluctuation or the snow that we had last week, that small invisible crack turned into like a two foot long crack that just continued to stretch its way across our windshield. And when you look at out a window with a crack like that, have you ever done that and noticed the fact that the image is distorted? Like it's not just a line, but it actually distorts the image. Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 did not put a small crack in the mirror of God's creation. His sin smashed into the middle of it like a muddy rock that sent cracks across the whole window and distorted the whole picture. In Romans 8, Paul explains that not only humanity has been affected by God's curse on Adam's sin, actually all of creation has suffered. In Romans 8, he says things like creation itself was subjected to futility, to a, to a pointless emptiness, Paul writes. He also says that it was bound, like enslaved, chained to its corruption. And then he says that the whole creation groans together in the pains of childbirth up to the present time until now. We see that, don't we? We, we look around history right now, history across time. We read about natural disasters like tsunamis or earthquakes, tornadoes, droughts, famines that circle the globe. Countries invade other countries killing soldiers and civilians, men, women, and children. Diseases ravage communities or countries, even the whole world. Heart attacks take fathers or mothers from their families. Cancer infects grandparents, parents, siblings, friends, even children, and often claim their lives. Various conditions causing untreatable chronic pain make it difficult for people to live, work, even get out of bed in the morning. 
And then there are the mental and emotional and spiritual tolls and effects of living in the midst of this fallenness. Out of what has happened, in the midst of what is happening, and sometimes just wondering what will happen to those that we love. And worst of all, worst of all, sin abounds everywhere. God is ignored. And even worse than that, even worse than being ignored is that gratitude for his many gifts is withheld from him and given to idols of various kinds, whether that's keeping that glory for ourselves or taking that which God has given us and making up a false God and saying, this is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the one who has given you these things. Truth is rejected, replaced by lies. Good is condemned as evil. Evil is praised as good. This is the world in which we live. Can there be any doubt then that this world, the universe in which we live, indeed all of creation is damaged and broken? We really live and and wonder if that truly is the case. The scripture is exaggerating. Certainly not. But this raises the, the question, if an inspection were to be done on creation, how bad is the damage that has been done to God's very good creation? And there's always something that the inspector finds, right? That no, one ever, no electrician, no offense to electricians, but at least the electricians that have constructed the houses that we've lived in uh, never get the polarity right, those plugs, every single time. That's wrong. There's always some drip. Uh, there's always some crack. There's always something, right? But, but a lot of times that they're, it's repairable. So the damage to God's creation, how bad is it? Is it a little plumbing work here? Uh, a little shoring up of the foundation there? Would that be enough? No. The level of damage is catastrophic. It is so broken that a new creation is needed a new heavens and a new earth populated by a new humanity. We're continuing our study of Colossians 1, 15 to 20 this morning, which is often called a hymn emphasizing the majesty of Christ. And in the first stanza or section of this hymn, Paul emphasizes the glory and greatness and supremacy of Christ over the original creation. Starting in verse 15, he, the son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. The son of God is eternally glorious, is exalted as ruler over all creation, as the creator and sustainer of all created things. But these created things are all broken and stained with sin. Is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ limited to this creation? Is he merely the firstborn over a condemned building desperately needing to be torn down? Is this everything that God has planned? Well, the gospel promises of God scattered throughout the scriptures as early as Genesis 3 point to something more. The promises of God throughout scripture point to something new that is coming. 
Last week, Keith walked us through Christ as the head of the body, the church, which begins a transition in this hymn from Christ's glory over the old creation, the original creation in which we live, and transitions us to Christ's glory over a new creation. That transition becomes explicit in the beginning of a new stanza or section, verse of this hymn in the middle of verse 18, which is our text for this morning. Hope you see it right here following along, right in the middle, right after it says, he is the head of the body of the church. Here's the start of this new stanza. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see the parallels between this and verse 15? I hope that you do because they're there. He is the image. He is the beginning. And it's not a coincidence that those phrases look the same. They are, except for beginning to image, the phrases are identical because these are the two headings. These are the two stanzas. But it doesn't just stop there. The, the similarities continue. Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. So at least two major sections. Do you see that? To this poetic hymn of praise to Christ. And those two sections have to do with God's old creation and God's new creation and how both of them bring glory to Christ. We've spoken for, has it been a month? About the glory of Christ in and through and over the original creation, the old creation. But how is it that the new creation brings glory to Christ? How does the new creation bring glory to Christ? Here's the answer to that. Christ's resurrection is the start of God's new creation. Christ's resurrection is the start of God's new creation. If you only write down one sentence, write this sentence down. If you only remember one statement, remember this statement. Christ's resurrection is the start of God's new creation. Four years ago, uh, several of us traveled to Uganda to visit the McFarlands. Uh, when the time came for us to leave, uh, we packed up our stuff, loaded into a bus and a van, and drove back to the city. And the ride was, was a little bumpy, but I'm really good at sleeping. Uh, so I, and I was tired, uh, so I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I could tell I didn't just feel groggy. I didn't just feel tired. I felt sick. Uh, and as the day went on, I realized I felt really sick. Uh, when we arrived at the airport a few hours later, I still felt terrible. And the interesting thing was that I was not traveling back home on the same flight as the rest of the team. Instead, I had a different flight taking me to Zambia a few hours after they had all left the country. So as I said goodbye to the team, I weakly grabbed my bags and headed to an airport waiting area to spend the next three hours late into the night. I think my flight left like at one o'clock in the morning. And then I spent the next three hours alone and very sick at the Entebbe airport. And that was just the beginning. Beginning is an exciting word, isn't it? That's just the beginning. It captures our attention like bait on a hook. See, many of you probably want to, well, oh, 
what did he suffer next? When we hear that something is just the beginning, it means the story's just gotten started. There's more where that came from. I can't help but think of that kind of excitement and anticipation when I read what Paul writes here in Colossians 1.18, that he is the beginning. He's the beginning. The beginning of what? What else is going to happen? That's the type of anticipation that we need to have. He's the beginning of God's new creation. In his incarnation, when the eternal Son of God became human, God entered the old creation. He lived in the old creation as the founder of the new creation. And like us, he lived as a true human being, growing, learning, uh, working, sleeping, eating, drinking, breathing, just like us. Unlike us, he perfectly obeyed God's will. He lived under the Mosaic law, and by his righteousness, his perfect obedience, he fulfilled that law. He completed it. He kept its standards flawlessly. And on the cross, he suffered under its penalties, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And all of this he did for us and for our salvation. He suffered all of this even though he was innocent and entirely without sin. Then on the third day after his death, Jesus rose from the dead. He came back to life. Having been killed by the inhabitants of earth, why would he ever come back? It's like, why would he come in the first place? And having been treated as he did, why would he ever come back? He came back because he was starting something new. And not just in his life, but both in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, these things were the beginning of God's new creation. And as the sun rose, a new day of a new creation dawned. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Two weeks ago, we spent the whole sermon talking about Firstborn. I'm just going to rehash all of that real now. I won't. But this is the exact same word in verse 18 that he used in verse 15. And as we discussed that, firstborn, do you remember, can either emphasize time or it can emphasize title. Right? So Isaac is the firstborn of Aaron and Sherry. As much as Ethan would like to be, he isn't. Even a few minutes, one firstborn. Right? I, you've never heard that from Isaac at all. He's never drawn any attention to that, I'm sure. So it can emphasize time. Who's the first one born? But as we saw a movement throughout Scripture, there was more of an emphasis on title. It was a position that was being emphasized, not just the priority of time. So the Son of God is the firstborn over all creation. Capital F, firstborn, title, over all creation, the old original creation. That's the point in verse 15. But now Paul is discussing the new creation. But once again, Christ Jesus is the firstborn. But now he's the firstborn from the dead. Is this emphasizing time or is this emphasizing title? We see both of those in scriptures. Do you remember? At first glance, it seems like it couldn't be emphasizing time. 
because you could say, well, Jesus was not the first human to rise from the dead, so it can't be time. But, you know, because, I mean, there are at least two examples in the Old Testament of resurrections, then at, then at least four, account, four separate accounts of resurrections in the New Testament, in the Gospels, before Christ rose from the dead, and probably others. However, Jesus, as the firstborn from the dead, is tied to him also being the beginning. So there is a time element to firstborn here. There's also the title element. It's, it's fused together. The time element comes, like, yes, there were other resurrections, but he holds an exalted position over everything because his was a unique resurrection. Right? The one that Elijah raised from the dead, the, the boy that Elisha raised from the dead, the people that Jesus raised from the dead, were not the same kinds of resurrections as Jesus' resurrection. Every other resurrection account was the restoration of life back into the old creation. What does that mean? It means that even though it's not discussed in Scripture, every single one of those people died again. Like we study Lazarus and how exciting that was in John chapter 11 when Lazarus is wrapped and comes out of the tomb, right? Lazarus, come forth, and he does. He rose from the dead four days after being dead in that tomb. Poor, poor Lazarus had to go through all that again later in life because all his resurrection did, now I'm not trying to minimize the miraculous on this at all, but it was a resurrection back into the old creation right? A uh, round two of the same kind of life. But Jesus's resurrection was not back into the old creation. Jesus's resurrection was the beginning of the new creation, a new kind of life, eternal life as the start of God's new creation. So what kind of life is this? Well, first, it's an immortal life, Romans chapter 6, verse 9, Paul makes this very clear. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ Jesus has, is now forever free from the old creation jurisdiction of death. Right? He subjected himself to it. Now he is exempt from it. He will never die again. 1 Corinthians 15 outlines more of these differences. I hope that we all come to recognize that there's a frailty that comes with our human existence, a frailty that comes from being part of the old creation. Uh, we are perishable, Paul says. Perishable. They don't know why, but when I think of perishable, I think of fruit. I think of peaches. Peaches are delicious, but it's like if I went to the store to try to get peaches, I would inevitably, uh, I, you know, I, I probably would remember after checking them out, you know, keep them safe in the cart, Keep them safe in the bag at Kroger, but then put that stuff in the trunk, pull it out. Inevitably, I'm going to damage it. It's just so frail. It's just so easily bruised. It's just so perishable. And that bruises, it gets soft, it starts to rot. That's like our bodies. Our skin can be bruised or cut. Uh, laces can rip the skin off of your fingers. Our bones can break. Our muscles can tear. Uh, that which uh, doesn't kill you only makes you stronger, except when it injures you beyond, uh, beyond repair. Our ankles can be sore from ice skating yesterday. Where did that come in? But not so with new creation bodies. Not so with new creation bodies. 
Christ's resurrected body is part of the new creation. It's imperishable. Not frail. Not perishable. Imperishable. Our earthly bodies are dishonorable, Paul says. The strongest, most impressive, most beautiful human being looks frail and pale and pathetic, lying sick in a hospital bed, being fed by family and cleaned by nurses. Not quite as impressive because we're dishonorable in those states, but not so with creation bodies. Long gone is the beaten, bruised, and bloodied body hanging on the cross. He maintains the scars as a picture of his grace to us. Christ's resurrection body is part of the new creation, is glorious, the opposite of dishonorable. And Paul goes on with more comparisons. Uh, we're weak now, but the new creation is powerful. We are natural now, but then this new existence will be a spiritual existence, which isn't the contrast of physical, right? Because it's a resurrection of our bodies. Our bodies themselves will be spiritual. Uh, he goes on to try to explain now we're earthly and we're dust, dusty, dust-like made from dust, but then we will be heavenly. These things are all true of Christ's resurrection body uh, first and unique. And all of this can be summed up in one word. Christ's resurrection body was glorified. That means it was perfect. And not just perfect as in without flaws, but, but when we think of perfect in scripture, we need to also understand that there's an element of completion to it. Like perfection and fulfillment have the same type of nuance to this the destination that everything was headed for finds its first fulfillment in Jesus. This is what everything is headed for. It's at its peak permanently. No improvements needed or possible to Christ's resurrection body. And his glorified body is like a perfect prototype of those who would come after him. Not just like the the beta edition that they're, as soon as it's released, it's starting, they're starting new editions. It's like they've already, by the time you get something like that, like software that's in its beta edition, as soon as you touch it, like they already know about a dozen flaws. They're already working on the next release of it. And so sometimes we can think a prototype is like good so far, but going to be improved on, but that doesn't work like this. That's not what this type of prototype is like. Uh, this is the perfection of which, against which everything else is being compared. Everything else is moving toward. No flaws, no improvements. He's a prototype of those who would come after him. And there will be some coming after him because he is just the beginning. There are other passages where firstborn is used like this in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, as Christ is being introduced in this glorious, uh, this glorious vision to John, it says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of earth. You hear the title? Almost the exact same phrase used here in Colossians 1.18. We also find this, this word, this idea of firstborn, and its priority, and its, its beginning of something, in Romans 8, 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the son, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
the firstborn among many brothers, the beginning with many coming after him. It is true that Jesus was the first one to be resurrected to this new creation life. It remains that firstborn is a title like prince or king or lord, giving Jesus priority or importance or rulership over a realm or over a people. In this case, in Romans 8, he's the firstborn among many brothers, many brothers and sisters, many who would follow the most highly exalted member of God's new family is Jesus. But every other member of God's family will be made like him. 1 Corinthians 15 uses a similar term to firstborn to discuss Christ's place in the new creation. In fact, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In Christ shall all believers be made alive or resurrected into the new creation. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So do you see the emphasis here? Colossians chapter 1, these other passages as well. What is Paul trying to get across? I look at this, I see clearly. Paul is communicating that Christ's resurrection is the start of God's new creation. He's the start of it. And that Christ is the beginning, but he's only the beginning. The beginning of a work that would continue. His resurrection would not be the only one of its kind. And it wasn't the end of God's work. By his resurrection, Christ proclaimed that the new creation had broken in to the old creation. And God's work was just getting started. Like, like the D-Day invasion on the beaches of Normandy in, in June of 1944, Christ endured the onslaught of the enemy and established a beachhead by which he could deliver his people from the domain of darkness. His resurrection was the beginning and God's new creation work, hear this, God's new creation work is continuing with us. His new creation work continuing with us. This is why Paul could write to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Sin, sickness, suffering, frailty, loss, disaster, death, all part of the old creation. And although Christ has been glorified, he has been raised to a new incorruptible life. And in him, God's new creation has started. We have not yet been glorified. We're, we're stuck, as it were, between two worlds. Uh, our souls, our hearts have been made new. Uh, our bodies remain old, as it were. We continue to battle our sinful flesh as we seek to walk by the Holy Spirit. Paul knew the suffering of being part of the new creation, trapped in the old creation. And he wrote letters 
addressing these aspects. He wrote to the Corinthians, a letter that, that opens up a number of the aspects of suffering that Paul endured as an apostle for the sake of the gospel. And as he outlines these things, uh, he writes this to them. He said, even though all this is true, but we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, not just to the old creation, but to the things that are unseen, that, that which has to do with the new creation. The things that are seen are transient. The, the things that are unseen are eternal. This is 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. If, if you... Write that down too. Take some time to read 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. I want to read the whole chapter, both of those chapters today, but you read them on your own. But here's Paul's point from this. The miseries of this old creation will not be a permanent part of your existence. Christianity is not a blind naive, disconnected from reality, faith that pretends that everything is great right now. From Genesis 3 to like what, Revelation 19? Things are not great right now. Like the whole of the Bible. It's at the beginning and the very end. Things are not okay. See, I think other faiths try to escape that. Christianity just stares it straight in the face. It says, things are bad. You know why? Because of sin. You know what you are? You're a sinner. But you know what Jesus did? He saves you from it. Like, it's like it's all because all of us are old creation, but the new creation has dawned and it's coming. And it's worth what we're enduring. When we look at God's very good creation in the early chapters of Genesis, and then we consider the depths of sin and misery that have come about since then, it can be easy to think things did not go according to plan. I wonder if you've been tempted to think that. That things got out of control and that God's original purposes somehow failed. This is, this is how many people address what we call the problem of evil, right? Good, powerful God, lousy world in which we live. They're like, all right, reconcile these two things and they're like, okay, let's lower God and then it all works. Like, well, no, it, no, it doesn't work. Oh, we don't have the right to lower God. That's idolatry. That's blasphemy. But they were like, well, God, okay, yeah, he doesn't know everything. He certainly can't control everything, but he's a really good planner. So even though he had like this cool plan of creation, and even though it all went south, I mean, it wasn't God's fault, uh, but God formulated plan B real quick. He, he had this plan of redemption, decided at that point, post-fall, to send Christ to clean up the mess that we made of things. And maybe that sounds right. Maybe that's actually what you think, but I, I must clear things up for you that that in no way aligns with the teaching of Scripture. Like that, that's, a, that's a religion and a God of your own making and, and it does not match and therefore you cannot hold it and be a faithful Christian, right? That God uh, makes mistakes but then he can fix it really well or that he's somehow disconnected from his creation. It's dishonoring to God. It's not, it's not the truth of scripture. 
Instead, the Bible speaks of an eternal plan of God to redeem his sinful people. And this plan existed before creation, even before time. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 1 together this morning. Before the foundation of the world, eternity past, this is God's plan. All of it. This is God's plan. In the perfect wisdom of God, there needed to be an original creation over which his son would reign as firstborn, and there needed to be a new creation over which his son would reign as firstborn. And the purpose of both the old and the new, the reason for both the old and the new, the the goal of both the old and the new is the display of the unmatched glory of Christ. Or what Paul calls here, Christ's preeminence. What a word. Preeminence. Like that's one of those titles that you see in a, in a movie or read about in a book, right? Somebody coming before the king. Oh, your preeminence. Supremacy. There's an element where you could translate this as, as his firstness. And I know that's not a word, but sometimes not real words can get stuff across. Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. Christ is first. You know, no one, no one can be the best at everything. Uh, Michael Jordan, greatest at basketball, but not so much at baseball. Sometimes celebrities can succeed in a few things. Athletes may become movie stars. Movie stars can become successful uh, politicians, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Bodybuilder to actor to governor, governator, gov- governator. How did how did they call that? Uh, but there has to be a limit at some point to those type of things, right? I mean, can you imagine? Our our, our culture is obsessed with fame and celebrity <coughs> idolatry. Uh, but can you imagine someone in our culture being a famous athlete? and a professional musician, and an actor, a business mogul, a college professor, a military general, a, a chef, a, a politician, and all, all while faithfully pastoring a church? It's hard enough to try to be successful or faithful in any of these spheres, let alone all of them. I mean, nobody can be at the top of, of everything. You know, the, the readers of the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, uh, was in, they were in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire, can't have an empire without an emperor. Uh, and not at this time, but before this, and certainly someone that w- they would have been familiar with, uh, the Roman Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who was, it was king, ruler, lord over the earth. Uh, when Christ was born. One author gave this type of background info to this. He says, the most analogous background, the best analogy I can think of is the Roman Emperor Augustus who claimed to exceed everyone in influence and authority, a combination of power and prestige. The Augustan age created a pyramid of power and hierarchy that put him inviolably at the top. Indicative of this, showing this, is that Augustus held the proconsulship of Rome. Even if you don't know what that means, it sounds really impressive, right? He held the proconsulship of Rome well beyond the normal limitations of service. He was invested with the power of the tribunate with right of veto over the Senate. Executive and legislative power, all of them in, in him. He was the chief citizen of the government. He had direct military command over three quarters of the Roman legions. 
He had the power of intervention in all imperial provinces, and he was given titles like high priest of the empire, an emperor and son of a god. And with that background, the author says this, the implied rhetoric, the the force of this poem is that as the preeminent one, Jesus is the real influential authority over and against the pretentious claims of earthly rulers to be sovereign and divine. Right? Sometimes dictators are like, I'm the best. It's like, oh, well, this person's the best. Kill them. I'm the best. Everybody else is like, you're the best. Right? Uh, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the prettiest? Snow White. Cut her heart out. Now who's the prettiest? I mean, obviously the story doesn't go that you see what I'm saying, right? But that's not what Jesus needs to do. He doesn't need to be like, anybody want to go up against me? I'll prove I'm better than you are. I'll knock you out of the way. No, it's just clear. Like, it's just him. Do you want to compare yourself to Christ in power? Create something by your word. Go ahead. Anything. No. Fulfill the law. Perfect righteousness. I'll give you, let's try an hour. Somehow I can sin sleeping. Jesus never sinned. Read about his temptation in the wilderness, right? Near starvation, having the power to be able to make bread. He's like, that's not God's will. I want nothing to do with it. He is preeminent. And so while the Romans and the empire claimed Caesar is Lord, the early Christians countered, no, Christ is Lord. And they suffered. They died for that claim. But they knew it was true So they were willing to testify it. Every part of everything is about him. It all comes from him. It all comes through him. It is all for him. All authority, all honor, all power, all rolled into one. Everything is about Jesus and his glory. The whole point of everything is his preeminence. We we all desperately want everything to be about us. Don't we? Don't we just want everything to be, be about us? I mean, be honest. I mean, we want slower cars to move off the road for us. We want uh, every traffic light to turn green for us and every checkout lane at the grocery store to be clear for us. We want it to rain on our gardens, but we want the sun to shine on our special days. I mean, how selfish are our desires, but also how small, like how local. Like, if I was in control, that traffic light be green right now. But like, really? Like, that's the best that you can do? Christ's preeminence is not about his personal convenience on some sort of a local level. His supremacy is displayed not just in traffic lights, but in galaxies. In the rise and fall of nations, in spiritual resurrections leading to eventual physical resurrections. One day, everyone, everywhere, from every when, will see with crystal clarity that everything has always been about Jesus. One day, everyone, from everywhere, from every when, we'll see with crystal clarity that everything has always been about Jesus. But we're followers of Jesus. So like we've already, we've already admitted that, right? 
Like we've already come to see those things. Our spiritual eyes have been opened to the surpassing glory of Christ. We're no longer blind. Now we, now we can see, but do we live like that? Do we live recognizing the surpassing glory of Christ? When you wake up every morning, do you remember Christ is first? Is Christ first in your day and not just first of time, right? Title. Is Christ first when you eat? Is Christ first when you drive? Is Christ first in your schoolwork? Is Christ first in your job? Is Christ first in your chores? Is Christ first in your marriage? Is Christ first in your parenting? Is Christ first in your friendships? Is Christ first in your entertainment? Is Christ first in your prayers and in your worship and in your Bible reading? Is Christ first in your sickness? Is Christ first in your health? Is Christ first in your suffering? Is Christ first in your grief? Will, will Christ be first in your death? The goal of the old creation and the new creation is that he might be preeminent. So is he preeminent over your life? And in one sense, we could say that doesn't need to be a question. It'd just be a statement. Like he is preeminent over your life. Have you admitted that he is preeminent over your life? Are you living as if he is preeminent over your life? It is impossible for us to overvalue Christ. You cannot make too much of him. You cannot live too much for his preeminence. It's not possible. So many want to make so little of Jesus but God has freed us from that. We've been set free from sin in order to make much of Jesus now and for eternity. This is what we strive for. This is why we repent of sin, because Jesus is first. He is supreme. He is preeminent. This is why we forgive one another, because he is first. This is why we worship him, worship ourselves, don't worship false gods, worship Jesus because Jesus is first. The new creation that started with Christ has taken root in our hearts and it is slowly and steadily working itself out in our lives. God's new creation began with Christ and continues with us and then one day Christ will return and will bring with him the fullness, the completion of the new creation. One day there will be a, an eternal end, the happily ever after of happily ever afters. The completion of the new creation, this is what we are longing for. Whether, whether you know it or not, like I'm not even asking, like, is this what you're longing for? Like, I'm, just, I'm just telling you. This is what you long for. Like the answer to the miseries of this world, uh, caused by us, caused to us, affected on us, the answers to all of that is Christ bringing the new creation. That's the answer. That is what you are longing for. 
is what you are made to long for. That is the fulfillment of our hope. When Christ comes and that day will reveal for everyone, everyone to see the preeminence and supremacy of Christ. The glory of God will be on display without cracks or smudges. There will be no distortions. There will be no coverings. And it will remain on display perfectly forever. That's the day that is coming. And may the Holy Spirit help us to long for and live for that glorious day. Father, you are uh, God over old creation and new creation. We praise you as the one who declared to, to everyone, angels, demons, principalities, powers, humans, emperors, and slaves, you proclaimed Christ is over all by his resurrection from the dead, the start of your new creation. And you've started that new creation in us as well. You've made us new through Jesus. Help us to live new. Help us to long for the fulfillment of that new creation. Help us to spread as ambassadors the message of, of new life in Christ. A new creation that is coming. That you would be glorified in that. May our time at this table, uh, your table, remembering what Christ has done for us. May we remember that in, in, uh, in terms of a longing for being with Christ, uh, being part of forever, part of your new creation. Uh, we pray, amen. Uh, we do have, uh, we'll be celebrating the Lord's table uh, this morning. Uh, if you are a follower of Christ, not perfect hopefully you didn't catch that this new creation means that you never sin right you're you're we're working out that new creation being renewed in us uh, but if you are a follower of christ then then he says come uh, take of this bread it's my body take of this cup it's my blood it was shed for you so uh, you don't have to be a member uh, at risen king church in order to do that you have to be a follower of jesus his rules if you're not a follower of Christ, then uh, give thought to, at this time, to your sin, to uh, his suffering on the cross being punished for sinners, like you, like me. It's a matter of simply receiving by faith what Christ has offered. And for those of us who have come to him by faith, recognized our sin, uh, seeking to live for his preeminence over all things, uh, we come as an act of worship to the one that we know is all in all, over all things, forever. Uh, so that's true of you, not in perfection, but true of you. You've come to him in faith, and you've come to the table. Uh, uh, Jeremy, one of our elders, will, will serve, so we'll be dismissed. We'll come, receive the elements, uh, return to your seat. Once we all have the elements in hand, uh, he'll lead us in partaking together. Let me give a quick word of thanks. I'll turn it over to him. Father, we thank you again, uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you for your perfect life, your death as a substitute on the cross for our sins and your resurrection. Thank you for your body and your blood. Uh, may this be a time by, by faith we worship you. Amen.